0: You're listening to Revolution, a podcast that inspires educators to make meaningful change. My name is Michael R. McCormick, and I'm a school district superintendent best known as a technology enthusiast who is dedicated to increasing opportunity and access for each student. I'm sitting down with the movers and shakers who are making waves in the education space through research, practice, and technology integration. Buckle up and be inspired to make changes in your school or district and join the Edu Revolution movement. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Well, welcome to the latest episode of Edu Revolution. It's a podcast. I'm your host, Michael McCormick, and I am so excited to have our next guest. And I'm gonna borrow a line from David Letterman. This guest needs no introduction. But I'll say it anyways, this is Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond. I am so excited to have you here today, and uh, I'll just run through a couple of, of things from your bio. You're a, a professor of education emeritus at Stanford University. You're the founding president of the Learning Policy Institute. You're the past president of the education, uh, American Educational Resource, uh, Research Association, a member of the American Association of Arts and Sciences Sciences, and the National Academy of Education. You were also at Columbia University Teachers College, and I have a connection there. You've written over 600 publications and 50-plus books from my count. It's great to have you on the show today. You are an education rock star.
1: Oh, Mike, that's very kind of you to say, but it's really always a collaborative endeavor in education, as you know, and I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Oh, so fantastic. And I saw that you are a musician. Now, I don't know if your genre is rock, <laughs> but you got your degree in music.
1: I did. And um, my genre is not rock. It's uh, classical and jazz. Um, But right now, I am mostly playing from the Sesame Street songbook because I have two grandchildren. (laughs) So that is my current genre.
0: I'm so excited to hear that. I am waiting for this next phase of my life. I have identical twin girls that are now 26. Mm. Mm. And my wife and I are so excited to get to that next phase where we can welcome grandkids, and enjoy being part of that learning. And one of those twin girls of mine is a second-year kindergarten teacher. And I'm just loving watching her develop a deeper sense of teaching and care and and working with the youngest learners.
1: It's a beautiful job. I have a a former kindergarten teacher uh, as one of my daughters also.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I thought we'd talk a little bit about... This opportunity that this global pandemic has provided for us, you know, I think about Kurt Lewin and his three-stage model for change. And I definitely say that we are in the unfreezing part of this. And I'm wondering if the economic and political forces have caused enough disruption to our educational system to create an opportunity for your change. For change, what are your what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think there's a very deeply felt need for change uh, among many many educators. We've been kind of uh, stuck in this factory model approach to schooling for a hundred years, and so much uh, has been disrupted. Uh, and there's such a Obvious need to rethink the way we do things so that we can get to uh, equity for all of our learners, to a whole child, you know, framework for education, uh, to deepen the relationships that adults and kids have in schools, which is the pathway to a lot of learning. Um, so I do think that there is a moment that we should be seizing. I also think there are a lot of um, sort of a there's a geological dig of policies that we have to move out of the way. Um, in order to create a context within which new approaches to education will be supported. And I think that's going to take a bit of work.
0: Uh, I, I'm really appreciating what you said there. You know, it's interesting. I had as my last uh, guest on the podcast, Michael Fulan, and he said something to me, which was the top needs to, and I'm going to equate the top with policy, says the top needs to enable the work, but not necessarily lead the work. And I thought, wow, I just I felt like there was a lot of wisdom in that statement Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, we want the we want the top to coalesce around the work and enable it. But then it seems to me that it's it's really for the principles and the building level, administrators and the district office level administrators in these systems to actually in a way liberate the teachers to do the work that needs to be done and kind of remove some of those constraints i was thinking in fact i was just um sharing some thoughts with my principals and instructional coaches in my own district this morning. And I was reminding them about this concept of the grammar of schooling, which Tyak and Cuban wrote about in their book, tinkering towards utopia A century of public school reform and how we really haven't moved the needle very much. And I I don't know. Mm -hmm. Could I get some thoughts on, on that from you?
1: Well, you know, some schools have completely redesigned themselves and have moved the needle a lot, but the system as a whole still has a lot of what they would call the grammar of schooling, what uh, Seymour Saracen called the regularities uh, of schooling. Uh, Those were deeply embedded by the scientific managers of the 1920s, and a lot of our laws and policies, you know, still reinforce Uh, those those ways of doing things. Uh, So, uh, yeah, it is hard to get to utopia uh, without uh, removing some of those barriers. I worked for a long time when I was in New York City with Tom Sobel, who was the commissioner of New York State at that time. And he used to talk about top down support for bottom up reform. And I think that that is uh, cl- very close to the sentiment you were describing that we need to uh, allow you know, people who are closest to the kids in the communities to uh, to take up you know, a lot of this reform. But it does require uh, both some uh, supports, some incentives in the sense of some resources, uh, some elimination of old um barriers and policies, uh, and per- per perhaps a few new ones that will help people lean in the right direction. Uh, so it's definitely, uh, got to be led by practitioners and very, um, intentionally supported by folks who are, um, I, I, hate to think of the top of the system as though it's somehow superior, uh, but those who are in those, um, governmental offices that have a lot of influence on what can happen.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, kind of my own journey in this policy level work is it, is it took me 25 years of being a practitioner, teacher building principal and into my fifties before I kind of the light bulb turned on. And I was like, wow, there's this whole world of policy. And I've kind of been this, consumer of policy decisions for the entire, almost the entirety of my career. And then I just kind of had this epiphany one day and I was like, I I need to figure out how my practitioner voice can be in these policy conversations. And even if I don't get exactly what I'm looking for in terms of uh, a policy that's you know, makes good sense at the ground level, so to speak. Uh, maybe I can help shape the policy to make it to make it better. And I think, yeah, how did I miss the boat on this for all these years? Because I, I travel to Washington, D.C. or I go to Sacramento and I see that this is where the young people are and they're the ones that are really thinking about how to affect change through through policy. And, and a lot of it is really good work and i just I, i'm kind of ashamed frankly that i, I was i was so late <laughs> no. to, i was so
1: late to the party that's because <laughs> you were focusing on the most important thing which is the kids and the uh and the educators and the families that you know are are what we should be focusing on but it is good that folks start to pay attention you know john dewey years ago uh noted that it was really important for thoughtful practitioners also, to take up the issue of policy, because if policy, policy is too important to leave to the policymakers who may not be connected to education, uh, to the teaching and learning process. And it's actually why we started the Learning Policy Institute, uh, because there has been such a huge divide between what we know about how children learn, how uh, good organizations, how good school organizations operate, and what was going on in policy, uh, particularly during the No Child Left Behind era, that um, you know we decided to create an organization that could really take what we know and walk it into the policy uh, arena. And uh, that is, uh, I think it's making a beginning to make a difference, but we really need for the way in which schools are governed to be in line with the way in which children learn and educators learn.
0: Yeah, I, I'm I personally so grateful for your work at the Learning Policy Institute and pay attention to a lot of the stuff. And And we've been the grateful recipients of some of the um, examples that uh, you've you've been able to highlight some school districts um, around California and around the nation that are kind of beating the odds and and doing good things. And we're grateful to you and your team for kind of really diving into that research and finding this intersection between practice and research and how they kind of inform each other, I guess, in a way where practice can inform research and research can inform practice. And it seems to me like it's this. It's this circular motion that is that is really good and how we actually learn from one another. And I know, uh, Dr. Darling Hammond, you've been your voice has been in the Learning 2025 policy document that you. Um, there was several commissioners from throughout the nation who uh, I I think the inspiration for this may have come through the uh, administrators association, AASA. Mm -hmm. And um, this is really a systemic redesign. Like you stated, that's got to happen with intentional uh, relationship based culture. And it's really focused on three things. And maybe we can just kind of chunk this out. The first one is whole learner focused. In other words, the entire system must attend to the social, emotional, cognitive, mental health, and trauma-based needs of all learners. What's your thinking around this first bullet?
1: Well, I think that um, I'm going to talk about it, you know, from both practice and a policy perspective, you know, we, uh, for that period of time that I mentioned earlier in the NCLB era, there was a lot of emphasis on, you know, raising test scores, you know, and then punishments for schools that didn't raise test scores fast enough, which caused a lot of people to feel like they didn't have time to deal with the emotional needs of students, the social interactions that are fundamental, actually, to the learning process, as well as other things that go on in school, to the whole child. And that was kind of treated like, oh, that's just an excuse, not something to focus on. So I think that the... Educators' impulse has always been to focus on the whole child, but it means that we need to acknowledge that learning is social, emotional, and academic, that uh, the way we feel about um, ourselves, whether we have trust in the teacher and the classroom community, whether we have positive feelings about the content because it's interesting and engaging, does drive learning Negative. Uh, influences that cause us to doubt ourselves as learners, to maybe uh, carry stigma, uh, to um, have experienced trauma, certainly impede uh, the learning process. And it is not a waste of time to focus on social and emotional supports and learning. It's actually the pathway we know now, uh, to better learning, to more extensive uh, achievement. And we have to make it possible for teachers and other school professionals to know about the social and emotional uh, roots of uh, of development as well as learning, to um, organize classrooms in ways that reinforce the, all of those domains of learning that take into account trauma Uh, In ways that are responsive to figuring out what's going on with the student rather than to excluding them from the educational context because they, um, you know, are dysregulated in their behavior or they fall asleep in class or any number of other things that can happen when kids have experienced, you know, various kinds of trauma So uh, that's essential. And for that to happen in the policy arena, we need to legitimize all of those areas of learning as we have begun to do in opening up the accountability system to be greater than, you know, reading and math scores, but also to invest in community schools, in multi-tiered systems of support, in mental health professionals, in uh, professional development around social and emotional learning. And you have seen all of those things begin to happen in California in recent years as we really try to explicitly shift to a whole learner focus.
0: Yeah, I think this is the most excited I've been about education. And and just for me personally, I mean, school was my safe place. I mm-hmm. grew up in a very chaotic home environment. And um, school was a place where I discovered that I could predict the behavior of adults around me, uh, mm-hmm. which I was not getting at home. And so, you know, like a lot of school districts we were investing heavily in all of the additional staff and services to be able to address the needs of the whole child, so that they can be in a psychologically safe and you know somewhat predictable environment where they can be open and inside excited and enthusiastic about about learning. Um, yeah, and that's and that's wonderful. So I'm 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 just thrilled. The, the next bullet in the policy document is no learner marginalized. All children, families, and staff would be embraced, valued equally, and served with equity, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender, socioeconomic circumstances, or disability. Thoughts on this one?
1: Well, I mean, clearly this is critically important, and it does require us to question some of what we inherited from the, you know, sort of factory model uh, of the past. Because the original idea for the assembly line sort of school, where kids would, you know, move from grade to grade and um, class to class uh, along, you know, with the stamp of the – or pacing guide curriculum uh, laid on them. And the eugenicists, unfortunately, who were at Stanford University, among other places, but very prominently there, uh, took the first IQ tests that came across the ocean from France, turned them into the bell-shaped curve, uh, decided based on race and ethnicity uh, and gender and other factors who would be um, placed on which uh, parts of the conveyor belt based on what the assumption was about where they would go in life. Uh, and so we are always pushing against these structures that we inherited when we really try to ensure that everyone is valued. If you look at the highest achieving countries uh, and some that you know, were at one time low achieving, um, but you really have soared like Finland and um Singapore and Estonia and lots of other places that are, uh, near the top of the, uh, PISA rankings. Now they all detract their schools from the beginning through at least 10th grade, which is where, uh, specialization starts to occur. Uh, and then really focused on spending more money on the, um, learning of those who have the greatest needs. So we have a lot to do to, uh, make good on what I know are the um, commitments that, you know, most educators have to really having true equity in schools. It does sometimes mean we have to change the structures within which we uh, operate, figuring out ways to connect with families uh, on schedules that are good for the families uh, as well as for folks in the schools, uh, ways to um, really uh, counter The implicit biases that are all over in the society counter stereotype threat that kids will come to school with because they've already gotten messages about what is valued and what is uh, devalued in the society. So it's a major undertaking, but I feel like there's so much uh, good work going on to uh, enhance equity. And then, of course, there is the policy agenda around funding and being sure that we fund in a way uh, schools and districts, uh, and our system as a whole to make good on that. Uh, and that is also eventually going to require another war on poverty because the, uh, proportion of kids in California, you know, it's 62% of kids are eligible for free and reduced price lunch. So it's not a small minority. It is really, um, the, the norm, uh, so many children homeless and food insecure, uh, we really need a broader policy agenda around eliminating childhood poverty uh, and ensuring that all families have the basics uh, and the essentials for life, in addition to everything else that we're trying to do in schools.
0: Very well said. And I, I would say that, you know, part of this is challenging those assumptions that, you know we've all been socialized around schooling we have this system that tends to produce unequal results we know that talented students are everywhere opportunity and access are not and so how do we dismantle these these systems to make sure that everybody has a has a has a shot and can become the most productive self-realized person uh, that they're meant to be yeah. and um, gosh we're doing a book study with uh, several folks in our district on shattering inequities where it talks about you know how do we really dive in, peel back the wallpaper you know look at look at the data, look at the systems and begin to systematically remove those barriers that have been around so long that sometimes we just, we don't even have the, maybe the awareness that they're there uh, in the first place. So this is a, this is a great, um, this is a great undertaking, as you said, but one, and and I feel like, you know, we are making progress. We are seeing Mm -hmm. these lighthouse districts and classrooms and systems around that. So we know that, you know, it's interesting, and this is not to sound trite, but at this point, we're not splitting the atom. We know what works. It's how do we drive these practices deep enough into the system uh, that they can actually take hold and we can scale across um, larger and larger systems. The, the, the third bullet we have here uh, on the Learning 2025 plan is future-driven which means that schools must routinely anticipate forthcoming changes in the career landscape to inform all decisions. And, I, and just to put an exclamation point on this one, I would say that, you know, we have to be thinking about the future because our kindergarten class of students right now will graduate high school in 2035. And sometimes when I say that to our community, our educators, our parents, they're like, oh my goodness, I never thought about it that way. well, yes <laughs> this is this is how we should be thinking about that what wh- How are you thinking about this?
1: Well, you know um one of the things that I often mention is that uh, there's been a lot of research on the question of how knowledge is expanding, and there's a group over at UC Berkeley uh, that uh, published something a little while ago showing that the amount of new knowledge created between 1999 and 2003 was more than the history of the world preceding. And that knowledge is now uh, doubling um, more often than once a year. The, The huge knowledge expansion calls into question the whole way we've thought about school curriculum because basically we're asking kids to be able to work with knowledge that hasn't been discovered yet, with technologies that haven't been invented yet, solving major problems that we have not managed to solve around the you know uh, s- sustainability of the planet and the survival of the species. Uh, so the idea that there's like a set of facts that are you know discrete and uh, you can di- divide them up into the twelve years of schooling and. And tell them to students or ask them to read them out of a book and spit them spit them back on a multiple choice test, and then you're going to be ready for your life in the future is just uh, completely um, gone. I mean, that just doesn't even make sense anymore to think that that's what schools, Mostly need to do, um, and you know so that has implications for how we think about curriculum, how we think about uh, the testing systems that we have that um, you know hold us accountable for uh, certain kinds of uh, content uh, coverage, et cetera. But we really need to prepare kids for uh, how they can become resourceful. Self-motivated, self-initiating learners who uh, learn how to, you know, find resources, work collaboratively with others, uh, organize those resources into solutions to problems, uh, evaluate their own solutions and find out if they're working or not working, and improve on them themselves, uh, and then do all of that with a uh, sort of an ethical commitment to the welfare of their communities and uh, of the of the human race, uh, and to do that in a way that uh, can collaborate with many others, uh, both locally and globally. So it is a very, very different future uh, than what even 20 years ago we could imagine.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things we've, we've tried to do is um, we've developed this portrait of a graduate or portrait of a learner, you know, it's based on the four C's and, um, mm-hmm. And then we kind of try to operationalize that by giving students experiences in STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, mathematics. And ultimately, the goal is, as you stated, we want these self-directed creative problem solvers. And so we've made some significant investments to build out STEAM labs and every one of our elementary schools and middle schools. And then this flows into career and technical education. And for our local labor market, uh, we're heavy in logistics. We have three Amazon fulfillment centers. And we're saying to ourselves, like, look, we don't want to just prepare students to be warehouse workers. Not that that's a bad thing, but we want our students to be able to design the systems of the future that, will operate within these distribution centers, the logistics field, and and also other things. But we took the next generation science standards and kind of distilled that down to one area, which was engineering design principles. And we start kids with that in TK and then try to move them through this whole continuum up through high school so that they're getting opportunities to communicate, collaborate, critically think and problem solve and be creative in their solutions and give kids different ways to show their learning, not just maybe those traditional methods where they're making instructional videos. We have a partnership where we're doing animatronics. So kids are programming the robots, recording the voices, doing costuming, you know, creating the faces and the movements and all these kinds of things. And, you know, this was kind of an attempt to prepare kids for the future, but also get kids excited about learning. And more importantly, almost the teachers excited about teaching. Yes. So that they aren't just kind of, you know, because I looked back and in my district, a lot of our teachers came into the profession during No Child Left Behind. And so they haven't necessarily known anything. I was fortunate. I started my teaching career, you know, prior to no Child Left Behind and and the content standards movement and kind of this narrowing of the curriculum as a result of, you know, pretty strict assessment and accountability requirements. And so we're feeling like we're having to explicitly give teachers permission to try different things and to be safe around that. Because my take and maybe you've discovered some of this through your writing and research is that. What I'm describing, I think, has always occurred on the fringes of the organization, of the district organizations. There's always been your elective classes, your co-curricular activities, your extracurricular activities, where these types of amazing, you know, problem-solving experiences were happening. But then when you get into the core of the organization, your your more traditional subject matter areas, it may not be happening at the same pace or rate and so my thinking is, how do we take what's happening on the fringes of the organization, mm-hmm. take the best of that, fold it into the core and really start to scale this work? So that's kind of the some of the stuff we've been working on. But have you been thinking about these same kinds of things?
1: Totally. I have a big smile on my face as you describe what your kids are doing. I think it's wonderful and, um, you know, totally uh, you know, the the question of how to engage kids in that kind of deeper learning that you're describing uh, is especially um, constrained in some cases by the way in which we can have conceptualized curriculum and testing. And you're really reconceptualizing it. As you say, we're really going to pose these problems and use the content The content is being taught in ways that actually are organized around the problem solving, around the inquiry. And we are, Uh, inquiring human beings right the the reason if you look around you at whatever's in your house in your uh, wherever you're uh, located uh from computers to you know the invention of paper to the invention of uh you know fried chicken it's all about inquiry everything has been about human beings saying whoa i wonder what would happen if i did it this way i wonder if i try to do it that way how could I build this other thing? So inquiry is the fundamental driver that, you know, in some periods of time, we've kind of driven out of school. And it's been about, you know, uh, memorization and regurgitation. And so we have to really help pe- people feel freed up from this notion that you know, there's um, a set of standards and you've got a pacing guide and you're kind of marching through uh, transmission teaching and telling kids, you know, this is a fact, this is a fact, remember this, spit it back, find one answer out of five on a multiple choice test. That is not a skill that anyone uses in the real world, right? Nobody goes to the office and has a set of questions on their desk and you're picking uh, the right answers that are already given to you and then you go home because your work is done. Nobody does that. So the, you know, authentic work that you're engaging kids in is so important. Um, You know, we have been trying to move assessments more in that direction, but there's a, uh, quite a ways to go. Um, the uh, tests that emerged during No Child Left Behind were studied by the RAND Corporation. They We've moved you know, substantially to multiple choice testing by then, and they found that in the 17 states with the highest standards, only 2% of the items on math tests And only about 20% on English language arts tests measured higher higher order thinking skills, you know, the way that we analyze and evaluate and problem-solve. We've moved the needle a bit with Smarter Balanced. We have some performance tests there that, you know, get at the problem-solving process. But there's a ways to go to really change assessment and then uh, curriculum so that we are uh, allowing kids to... um, Certainly understand the core content of fields, but to apply it in ways that are meaningful and that really then allow you to get the kind of knowledge that's transferable to real world situations.
0: Yeah, man, oh, man. I am just, I'm loving this conversation. I told you it was going to go fast we're, <laughs> we're we're already nearing the end, but I do want to circle back to the very beginning. Cause I said, I had a connection to Columbia university teachers college. One of my all time favorite human beings, Dr. Chris Emden uh, was recently uh, there at the teacher's college. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. were there at the same time, but he, he wrote a book. Um, what was it called uh, for Oh my goodness. I'm drawing a blank on it. He would be so disappointed in me. It's, it's for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. And, um, I got invited to do a guest lecture, uh, over at Columbia. What a beautiful campus. And mm. just, I, I just loved it there. And so I, I wanted to give Dr. Emden a quick shout and, um, the other thing I was. I'm
1: a big fan, but we did not overlap you in did, time okay. and space. You know? Okay. But yeah. I mean. We, we overlap spiritually, but not physically. I, and, and that's the way,
0: I, you know, I, I met him for the first time several years ago. And I just said, oh my gosh, where have you been all my life? I love you. <laughs> and and, um, and I really do. Uh, because, you know, his pedagogy that he talks about inspiring kids, you know, how do we take kids And families, by the way, who have been systematically pushed out of the system and and ask them, why, how do we change this? What, you know, and and engage their voices in getting them to come back and having us challenge our assumptions to break down those systems and structures that were part of the systematic push out of um, of families. And so just great stuff. Um, well, we, we are at the end here. And so I always like to ask my guests, what's on your gratitude list? What are you grateful for, Dr. Darling-Hammond?
1: Uh, well, there's a lot to be grateful for. And I'm, I'm always grateful for my family. I have a very supportive family. And it's a family full of educators, my kids and my husband, all involved in education and doing amazing work on things uh, from you know thriving to restorative practices to support for students with um, special education needs and, and other abilities so I'm very grateful to them both in a personal way and a professional way and then I'm grateful to our profession you know the I'm always um, enormously impressed by the intelligence and commitment uh, and dedication of people in our profession and the way in which um, you know, teachers and uh, school leaders and all staff you know, step up over and over and over again and do this most challenging and most uh, selfless work that we're all involved in. And I take inspiration from that and I, um, and I honor it.
0: Well said, and you're speaking my love language. Uh, it was fantastic to have you a guest on the edgy Revolution podcast today. So grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Dr. Linda Darling Hammond.
1: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening today. I hope you feel inspired to be the change our students need. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can connect with me on Twitter at Mike underscore McCormick 2 and Instagram at Michael R. McCormick. And hop on over to the com website for free resources that support your next change initiative.